0: Hi everyone! Thanks for listening. Today I am speaking with Sohel Ahmed. Uh, Sohel goes by Reason on Faith uh, on Twitter, and also has a YouTube channel of the same name. Um, Sohel and I know each other through Ex-Muslims of North America, and gotten to become friends. And he's an obviously an ex-Muslim. Uh, he's ex-Ahmadi, more specifically. He's living in Canada now. He was born in the UK, um, and He's just recently put out a video about explaining why he's no longer uh, a Muslim. His journey to apostasy. Also the fact that, you know, he was keeping that secret for a couple of decades now. And just his whole story, which I highly recommend everyone watch that video. I'll put a link to it on the bottom. Um, But one thing I have to say is, so hell, I thank you first for coming on. But one thing I've always appreciated about you, and it's something I'm sorely lacking, you have such a calm demeanor, even like tweeting or whatever. I don't think I've ever seen you angry or you know lashing out. And I'm like I said, it's I'm sorely lacking in that because I, I get irritated and frustrated so quickly. Anyways, thank you again for coming on. And if you wanted to, you know, let people know a little bit about yourself, and then we can go from there.
1: Oh, well, thank you, Obeah, uh, for the kind words and for having me on the podcast. Um, a bit about me, it's, uh, I mean, I guess this is a short version, a long version. Um, I, I'll just start with a couple of details. I started, um, well, I was really devout as a, as a teenager and into my early 20s. And I started questioning and I found the conversations with religious elders weren't really getting me answers. So I ultimately wrote a book. I didn't publish it. It went just to these religious elders, and they didn't give me answers. And that, in a sense, was my answer. And for many years, I just kept the disbelief to myself, and kind of drifted and, and as far as religion, and just focused on other areas of my life, and my career. And then a few years ago, I noticed the ex-Muslims of North America, and I saw ex-Muslims generally speaking up, And a lot of those old feelings and theological questions came back, Uh, not that I had to readdress anything, but that I felt I had something to contribute, and I should get involved. And in fact, I need community too. And so I joined, and I just started as somebody attending the meetups, bonding with people, and then informally starting my own meetups, or, or like creating events uh, in addition to the sort of the official ones. And then I saw people in XMNA actively engaging with other people publicly on theological issues. And I thought, you know, I need to step in and do that. I've got some knowledge. It would be selfish of me to just be bonding with other people, supporting other people, focusing on community, and not having any role in outreach. So that's what I started doing about three years ago, and people would know me from my alias Reason on Faith, tweeting, writing blog posts, and then recently, as you mentioned, I created a video to kind of explain the journey and hopefully address a whack-a-mole of objections I would get by releasing what is, you know, a two and a half hour, a uh, small movie, in effect. And that's kind of in a nutshell my story. Um, so I'll leave it to you now to wherever you want to drill in
0: okay um so like on your video like you said it it is two and a half hours but again i recommend people watching it because you do do that you go through a list of questions okay if you're gonna ask me why this and you give specific examples um but then also you you talk a bit about um you know amadeus which you know slight difference from other sects of islam smaller sect. if you could maybe go into this a little bit but i'll just like, started off, like, I'd always thought of Ahmadiyya's, and frankly, I hadn't heard about the Ahmadiyya sect until about 2014 or so. But from that point on, like, it, to me, it was kind of like the Mormons of the Muslims, in a way. Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a good comparison. The, because of one of the things you bring up in the videos, because uh, you, you, you always hear that they're, they're very peaceful and a lot. I started comparing them to uh, uh, the uh, the Tablighis, right? Tablighis are also evangelical and have a missionary-type way of going about it. But like on the surface, the Ahmadiyya message is not nearly as harsh as the Tablighi. And I find that Tablighi also go around to other Muslims telling them how to be better Muslims instead of wholly proselytizing to other people. Do you want to try to compare... like? the two styles um, or if you want to just talk about Amadeus because I find like I said the Ahmadiyas, even though they're they come off as more benign there's still quite a lot of pernicious stuff underneath which while it might be apparent with the Amadeus the Ahmadias might
1: get a pass right so um, I know a little bit about the Tabliki Jamaat insofar as you know they're butting heads ideologically with Ahmadi Muslims and yes they're missionary they're evangelical but I think the comparisons stop there because they've got a lot of animus in their message, as you sort of alluded to, whereas Amethys, uh, on the surface and legitimately, are promoting a peaceful way of dialoguing and interacting with other people to convey their beliefs. So I think there are problems with their theology, the, the Amity theology, with the social structures built up around what is effectively a very high-control community and we can get into some of those but when it comes to the issue of like warfare jihad violence uh, they are you know they they walk the walk and they they walk the talk um they are very peaceful they've not been involved in any terrorist activities and that's because even though they believe in the same quran as everybody else they're very selective with their hadiths. they are also very focused on the writings of their founder mirza Ghulam ahmed who came in 1889 and made a claim and that he was the Messiah and Mahdi that the Muslims were waiting for. And because he wrote so many books, and then he's had successors or Khalifas after him, so much of what they have to say is what drives the Amadi Muslim mindset. And so their approach to things, their interpretation of the Quran, their softening of otherwise hard edges in Islam become the de facto go-to understanding. And that's how they're legitimately very peaceful they're not looking for offensive jihad obviously if somebody attacks you you've got to defend yourself so that's still in play and and that's reasonable um so that's that's their ethos and uh, i think that's as far as the comparison goes of of really just evangelism uh, evangelical outrage
0: yeah okay um sorry i should have been a little bit clear about that i i didn't say that they were espousing any I, i didn't want to imply that they were espousing any kind of jihad or um you know, violent overthrow or anything like that. But I was just talking more about, like you said, it's a closed society. Um, you know, so they still have women treated as second class citizens. They still have, you know, social problems that you'll find with other Muslims. Whereas with the Balihi Jamaat, you can point to them and say, these people are talking about jihad, These they're talking about this. And right off the top, you have that to go to. Whereas with the Ahmadis, you might. They might get a bit of a pass because you're not going to lick too deeply because they aren't so overtly calling for violence because there is still issues socially that stem from the religion.
1: Right, right. So they're not overtly nor passively calling for violence. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, you're right, they do get a a bit of a free pass in, in Western society, in liberal media, because Islam seems to be reduced for a lot of people to one issue, which is terrorism. And so if you can have an effective narrative against terrorism and espousing peace you've got a free pass notwithstanding that there can be a whole host of other issues socially you know that you get with high control religions that cause problems for people and not even to mention the underlying question that you know most of society you know it's the elephant in the room that polite society doesn't talk about which is to ask frankly is this stuff even true
0: yeah i think that that's that, that comes down to the core of it. And I'm going to go a little far afield here, but it's not just religion. Uh, recently, I just read, um, in the last few months, I've just read a couple of really good books. One was um, The Beginning of Infinity by David Deutsch. who talks about how we accumulated knowledge. And then one I've just finished in the last week was uh, Kindly Inquisitors by Jonathan Rauch. Or Rauch, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Um, anyways, David Deutsch, he talks about static and dynamic ways of thinking. And then if you look at Kindly Inquisitors, it's about you know Khomeini calling for a, you know, issuing a fatwa on Rushdie, the creationist debate. He also talks about he calls it the humanitarian threat to liberal science. And it's just that faith in and of itself like the dogma of faith will keep you from being able to ask the questions that can actually get you truth because everything is done by god you know you know if you look at the abrahamic faith science is done by god because god created everything and then the knowledge that was held from held back from us that you know we were kicked out of the garden for was the knowledge of good and evil So, you know, God controlled everything, right? Like it's, religion is just another one of these dogmas that's out there. Unfortunately, it's one of the more prevalent ones, but it's just another way to stifle people from thinking, like you said, you know, like you have to get to some kind of truth. Like, are these things true? And, you know, unfortunately, I think that, that enterprise is being attacked on so many different fronts right now that, it's just hard to keep up right
1: so let me address one thing that you mentioned just a, a bit earlier about because the theists have god they will just go to god as the explanation for things and that sort of stifles advancement or seeking knowledge i think if i were to put a modernist apologetic cap on just to just to sort of play devil's advocate here i think what we're seeing now is a trend where they'll say look yes, God did it, but that doesn't mean he doesn't want us to explore and figure out his beautiful means of doing so. And so modern apologists will, will reconcile those things. And in, in modern religion, at least, at least in some denominations and some faiths, that's no longer a problem. So I think they're evolving as well. Yeah,
0: but at one point or other, saying God did it, right? will stop it'll stop at some point like let's just say string theory uh you know a lot of people are still even now they're saying okay it's they've been trying it for a while is it going anywhere but so they're working on string theory to find out if you know what is the fundamental particles that make up everything right but if you have a firm belief that god did everything and at one point there is going to be no underlying cause and it's going to be god it's going to stop your inquiry at a certain point, and I mean, it's it's a point that uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson made. If you look at Newton, and because his belief in you know in an engineer that will tweak the solar system to stop it from flying apart, he didn't find perturbation theory, which Laplace did, like a hundred years later. But I mean, right. Newton shouldn't have been able should have been able to figure out perturbation theory because he came up with calculus. Right. But, but i think
1: that's a, a function of his time and his attitude toward re- reconciling religion and science which i think in in modern religions they take in a different attitude so now we may not hit those kind of problems and i'll and i'll give you a sort of a case in point the only muslim scientist to win a nobel prize was dr abdul salam he was an Amadi muslim and so he he won the same year as uh, stephen weinberg yeah. and i think his work was on the Weak nuclear force. And so that didn't stop him from, um, you know, pursuing understanding things at a fundamental level. And so I, I think we have to be careful as non-religious people to to continue what was true maybe in Newton's time and perhaps projecting it into to current time. Because I think while there are maybe some fundamentalist Christians who would be like, oh, we don't need to know, we don't need to explore – I think there are probably elements of Christianity, Islam, and and other faiths who will now who, who who've let that go. Okay, uh,
0: I agree, and but I still have a little small bone of contention here. Francis sure. Collins, right? Yeah, the head of the Human Genome Project mapped the genome. But here's a guy who doing this, and you know, obviously a brilliant person when it comes to genetics. And you know, probably a brilliant person overall, but he was walking through the Adirondacks, saw a waterfall frozen in three parts, dropped to his knees, and gave himself to Christ. And yeah. you know, and in some sense, believes the account of Genesis, whether it's it's a allegory or whatever. But he he believes some of it to some extent. Like, yes, we are all born in sin, and when it comes when push comes to shove, I'm not saying you know, like you were talking about. Uh, uh, sorry, I'm going to forget his name, uh, uh, Abdullah... Uh, Ab- S- Abdullah Salam. Dr. Salam. Yeah. 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 He, they worked on the weak nuclear force because they knew they had quarks and stuff underneath, underlying, you know, the, the the subatomic particles. And But now with string theory, you're looking for something even smaller, something we can't, like, you know, we can't even see quarks, let alone those. But what I'm saying is, at what point then, how far will your inquiry go when you give it off to god and i know in newton's time yes there were newton was religious there were other religious people newton believed in all kinds of weird stuff um but at this at this point like okay there is nothing to test for we're going on some sort of faith here like you know even the multiverse or the many worlds i tend to believe what i've read on that because i don't understand the math but the math can only go you, get you so far, right? Like we don't have actual proof. So if you have a belief in an ultimate creator and you're going after something like that, how long before the belief in the ultimate creator is just going to get you to throw up your hands?
1: Well, I think Francis Collins is a, is a great example because his conversion in front of that waterfall was a very emotional thing. Um, he was not necessarily saying other people should come to Christ because I saw this waterfall. It was was a very personal thing, and more importantly, it didn't affect his outlook on science and the Human Genome Project or or anything there. So that compartmentalization, I think, while I find it puzzling, and I'm sure you do too, it it still works for these people. It's not holding back the science, and I think we're we're in a new era where that sort of thing isn't really gonna hold back the science, because it'll always be people curious, who are giving themselves a new narrative of it's our responsibility to study as far as we can push it and keep pushing to understand the beauty of God's creation, for example. And that's what they would say. So I think that new narrative now has has generally removed that risk. Okay.
0: I mean, and again, don't get me wrong here, because in, in, I've had this argument with some people who said, okay, well, if it's a believing Christian, we shouldn't allow them to teach, teach biology. And I was like, no. I don't care if they're a believing Christian. If they can go in there and they can teach a subject, then they keep their religion out of it. I don't. I really don't give a rat's ass if on Sundays they go in and they believe in a six thousand year old Earth.
1: Yeah, you know, and that's if, true secularism. That uh, you know that uh, those things are personal, uh, and as long as they can function in their responsibilities to society in a public capacity, then you know what they believe and what they do in private um, are generally, uh, you know, their own business.
0: All right, uh, like I said, unfortunately, I think I took us on to a little bit of a tangent. It was fun. I'm uh, just going to get back to, Kate, your video. Now, You, we had, I don't want to say similar, but because I started questioning a little bit earlier, and uh, I stopped believing about 16, and then, you know, like six years later, I told my folks, uh, but you, I mean, you kind of lived... Um, you know, you lived hiding your apostasy or your non-belief for quite a while.
1: So so let me, let me clarify a bit of the timeline there. So as a child, I think there was a period when I was maybe seven or eight where I actually questioned the whole thing. Um, but of course, you're not having conversations at that age necessarily with other people at that level because it's just socially so taboo. But I, I kicked around those ideas of you know does God exist and is this religion true and things like that at a young age. At the same time, I'd be really active in the religious community, and at the religious camps, which we called Ishtamaz in the Amitya Muslim community, I'd be doing the religious knowledge tests, and I would I would always score at the top end. Um, but if you got me to try to you know recite the Quran in Arabic, I wouldn't even bother, or do the Urdu poems in a singing voice, I didn't even try those. So. You know, I I had those periods where I was, like most children, kind of indifferent. I'd go through the motions. I'd finish the Quran. My parents had an amin for me. And then there'd be another period, maybe when I was 12 or 13, where I'd start to get into it a bit more, and I'd be religious. Uncles and aunties would sort of dote on me. Oh, you're such a good boy, and you're religious, and you're scoring well on the religious knowledge tests. And I had an aptitude for it. And then you get to a point, and I think it was maybe 14, 15, where I was just, I didn't really actively question it. I just, I was indifferent. It didn't matter as much. And then I hit about 16, maybe 17 at the latest, and it started to become really important to me. And I dug into it. And the more I did, the more I'm seeing this curated material that's very rosy on the surface. I had that very kumbaya instinct and idealism that, oh, you know, I want to bring everybody together under one banner and we're all one big family. And I think any young religious person sort of feels that way about their particular church or denomination uh, and they want to bring everybody together. So I had that. And then when I did, you know, and that took me into my early 20s. But when I finally put my book together at 25, and presented that to the religious community and they couldn't give me answers, I just checked out because I said, you know, this is this is not for me. But I didn't advertise it. My parents knew. My siblings knew. But generally, other people just saw me as somebody who wasn't as active religiously. But people don't, you know, you know this. In the Muslim community, people just assume, oh, you're not really actively involved. You probably haven't read much. You don't know much. If you did, you'd be more religious. And so you just let people have that perception of you. And this is something you'll remember from my video, where at a certain point, you get fed up with people having the perception that you're somehow the lazy Muslim or the deficient Muslim or the uh, rebellious Muslim, um, it's just undignified for people to look at you that way and for you to project that passively because you don't want to create a scene. And so, yes, I did have these kinds of questions and periods well before my teens questioning things, but I wasn't as solidified in those thoughts as it sounds like you were in your youth
0: yeah I mean well with me it's it was just it was one question and then from there I didn't get a sufficient enough answer for that one question and then from there it just led me to just more and more things came up and I'm like well, okay this just doesn't make sense and that was it it was you know like like for me the first question was uh hearing about you know in five billion years the sun's going to burn up and it's going to die out and we're all going to be dead and then reconciling that with the uh, day of judgment and then my parents trying to tell me that it's the same thing I was just like, no it's not they don't even sound remotely the close you know the same except for the fire but there's other parts of the day of judgment that you that doesn't show up in there and it's just and then from there it was just you know Again, Carl Sagan was a huge part for me um, because I watched when Cosmos came out. I was just about to start grade three, I think, and so watched Cosmos. Then went into grade three or no, sorry, it was it was after grade three. It was like maybe grade five or something like that. But yeah, Um, there's actually that's one one thing I wanted to touch on. You you moved to Canada from the UK. Uh, My family moved here from India. We moved here in 75, or December of 75. When did you guys move to Canada?
1: So I was um, only about four years old. So it was, um, you know, I I joke with people, and I say I lost my sexy British accent because I didn't get to develop one. So basically my upbringing was, all my formative years were in Canada. I don't have any background living in Pakistan, I visited India for a few months when I was, like, uh, a year old. But my my upbringing is is very much Canadian.
0: No, no. When what year did you move to Canada? in? do you remember?
1: Like, so this was the this was the mid seventies.
0: Okay, so the same time as my family. Yeah. All right. So because yeah, we moved like I said, December seventy five, and I was six. No, because um, when we moved to when we moved, we moved to Montreal, and there was a small south asian community on this like the suburbs on the south shore of montreal and you know my uncles were there and but then my dad didn't want us to live there specifically but coming into uh, canada coming from the Ahmadiyya tradition like did you I, I don't know what toronto was like so were there was there specifically an Ahmadi community or was it just a general south asian community
1: um, there was an Amity community, and it was very small. It was a few families, and they were pretty tight knit across the GTA. Okay. And those were kind of the golden years of that community. And I've talked to old friends who who grew up at that time from some of the early families, and how there was a lot of really good people, a lot of sincere people, a lot of a lot of love between the families, and it wasn't as uh, rigidly religious and organized and sort of orthodox the way it's since become in the last 20 30 years
0: yeah okay what's your take on that because i, I noticed in montreal we moved here like i said and they're in the mid 70s so there was i believe one maybe two mosques in montreal like one shio one Sunni. um but it was only about the mid 80s that they really started getting more and more i mean by that point i think we had a few but still only a handful. But it was around the mid-'80s that more and more mosques started being built. And I don't think the communities were large enough to kind of warrant the amount of mosques that were being built. It was just, you know, oh, well, this is a Bengali neighborhood and this is a Pakistani neighborhood, so instead of having one mosque where we'll go together, we'll have a Bengali mosque and a Pakistani mosque.
1: Right. I think a lot of that is just a natural consequence of immigration and a higher concentration then you end up getting more organization things become a little bit more structured which sometimes well most of the time brings with it more rigidity and that's just a natural outgrowth i think
0: but i mean i found the rigidity was okay like my 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 mom um you know prays five times a day my dad would always play zakat but my my parents were never ones we would we never went to the mosque you know except On Eid, so like you know, the the two big celebrations, we never really was not at first. There wasn't many there, but we just didn't go. Um, My uncles, on the other hand, did go and they would talk about how things were getting you know, the 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 Friday sermons were getting harsher and they were becoming more political. And you know, they're saying it's well, it's some of these people they're bringing in. Because they were bringing in imams, especially in the '80s. Now I think you know they can train people locally, but they were bringing in people who were a little bit more rigid from you know either the Middle East or South Asia or you know whatever you know whatever community that mosque came from. They would try to bring in people from there to be the imams, be the sheikhs, be the you know the Sunday school teachers, and they would talk about how that was coming up. You know, yes, there is more mosque because there's more people. I really, like I said, that's a natural thing that's going to happen. But what was being taught in some of them, at least anyways, they were complaining that it was getting a little bit more stricter. And they were saying that it's coming from the people coming in to
1: teach it. So I think in the Amity experience, because Amitys have a system of khilafat, of you know, what they consider to be divine leadership, I do remember that at the time of the third Khalifa, and even the early years of the fourth Khalifa, things were less rigid than they are now, where they have their fifth Khalifa of the Amadei community. And I think part of that is in response to this growing orthodoxy with other Muslims around the world. It's basically in response to the sort of Saudi export of ideology And Amadi Muslims wanted to be seen as, you know, that nobody else was going to out-Muslim us. We are the true Muslims. We have the Mahdi and the Messiah. We are the divine Jamaat. So if their women are covering up more, you know, we need to show leadership there. And so you see a lot more Amadi Muslim women covering now than they did in the 70s or 80s. You know, I'm sure you've seen all those pictures of like Egypt in the 1950s and things like that. It wasn't, too, it wasn't that different. Um, now, you wouldn't see Amity Muslim women with miniskirts, but a lot of them, at least at those early family gatherings in Toronto that I remember and I see old pictures of in the albums, people weren't even concerned with dupattas, let alone hijabs. And um, so, yeah, I think some of that conservatism has crept in for Amity's more so in reaction to feel like they're keeping up with being uh, representatives of the faith yeah okay that that's a really sad thing I, i'm sure amity apologist would disagree with me and, and tell yeah, me I'm wrong. yeah, long,
0: you know, yeah but but okay you know, what you're saying okay the they're doing that as a reaction to stuff coming from saudi but then if you go back a little bit further saudi was actually doing it as a reaction to Iran becoming more hardline not that Saudi was ever any kind of relaxed paradise or anything but right you know the Ayatollahs came in in 79 and in 1980 they had like full control and that's when they started pushing more of you know Shia extremism right and a lot of that Saudi did in response but Saudi had a lot more money and they're like oh let's go and and what you were talking about with the Omnis, I mean my family is in in India from Hyderabad I also have some family family in Karachi but I only been back once um but i see it in india uh you know more and more and more you'll see niqabs um yeah you know one of my aunts who up until the early 90s actually even like the early 2000s i think uh she never wore a niqab never you know she would drive she was completely right. as free as possible but now she's she doesn't want to drive. She's she's always you know. She goes outside. She wears a niqab and everything. It's because she started going to these Quranic study groups,
1: right? And so I, I I can hear Emma the apologist sort of shouting at this recording and <laughs> and and wanting to have something to say. So I'm gonna I'm gonna channel them for a second and put my apologist hat on, and and so their perspective would be that a lot of this conservatism that we saw or an emphasis on barda or covering and hijab and segregation and things like that. Has nothing to do with Saudi influence or out-Musliming other Muslims or any of that sort of competition, which is very, you know, uh, trivializing their divine leadership. It came from their divine leadership, their Khulafa, recognizing the moral degradation of the West and how, because things were sliding in the West and other parts of the world, they needed to step up their game as a greater moral defense against falling into those traps. And so that's why they had that leadership. And that's why there was a a growing conservatism that had nothing to do with Saudi or Iran or any other Muslims. They're completely independent. They have the moral leadership, and it's a divine thing they've been instituted with. And this is why we happen to see those parallels. So now I'll take my cap off.
0: Yeah, I mean, okay, you can come up with all kinds of things like that. It's just, but you know, but it's, it's, you, st- you see it everywhere. You see it like, like Indonesia. You wouldn't, same thing, you talk about the pictures from Egypt. With Indonesia, you don't even have to go back as far as the 50s. Like, you go back to the 80s or the 90s and you wouldn't see hijabs everywhere. Now you do. Um, you know, same thing in malaysia uh there's got to be something with orthodoxy there i mean like I, I don't know how you can just brush that off i know you're gonna like i mean i, I know it's apologist we both face this we both tried to you know argue against it and it's just but you keep coming back with these same very flimsy excuses uh, one of the things actually because i it was a long video and I don't want to sit here and take it apart or you I don't want to when I say take it apart I don't mean that um, but you know like doing an analysis of a two and a half hour long video but uh, like you touched on it a little bit and, and I know it's something that's kind of frustrating um, but it's this like speaking out about Islam right now uh, I joke that you know like when we were believing we walked an Islamic Surat al and now we're walking one between, you know, the Uber woke and the and the red pilled. Because you know, we don't wanna you know, we're gonna get called racist and whatever from one end, and then we don't want what we say to be used to spur up hate against our families and our friends and things like that. So it's it's like, you know, uh, your thoughts on that.
1: Well, one of the things that I've tried to do, um, and and I don't necessarily, you know, I don't take the position that everybody's got to take the tone I do. I think the, the general movement needs the firebrands and the diplomats and everybody in between. Different approaches reach different people. But I think across the spectrum, I do think it is possible that whatever approach that we take, we can also add in qualifiers when we speak. And again, we shouldn't have to. and not every tweet can have a you know, six paragraph qualifier that goes with it. And so I think people have to understand the context. But generally speaking, every so often, in venues and mediums that allow for it, let it be known clearly that we're separating ideas from people and demonstrate that in, um, you know, if there are Muslims being persecuted in China, Comment on that once in a while about how that's wrong. Let people know. And it, it's not virtue signaling for the sake of virtue signaling. It's it's basically saying, look, I'm more than a one issue person, and your your perspectives are more are, are better understood if people understand sort of how you interact with some of these what seem to be like peripheral issues. And when you talk about when we talk about how we love our families or that, you know, we took our mom out shopping today and she had a great time and then we dropped her off at the mosque or whatever. I think when people can see these humanizing anecdotes of how many of us have been able, for those of us who have, have been able to coexist with our Muslim families and friends, I think that makes our critiques of the ideas much more powerful. If we write an article, let's say, that's long form and we've if we think of how this might get co-opted by the far right, well, we can put some poison pills in there so that it can't be, or it's harder to be. And it's sad that we have to even think of these things, but I think by doing it, there's two wins. One, we're helping protect our material from getting misused and hurting the people that we love. And two, our critique I think, becomes much more seriously regarded by people who might be dismissive uh, off the bat. So that's my approach. I try to demonstrate that. I'm not perfect. I'm sure I've uh, slipped. I'm sure that even though I try to be calm most of the time, I've had the odd day, especially soon after I came out, where I started laying in strongly on Twitter. Um, But uh, those are rare. and. We're all going to have those as human beings, but I think what's more important is the overall arch, uh, the the overall ethos of our, our message over time.
0: Yeah, but, okay, here's where I'm, and I'm really disheartened, and it. it was, you know, I, I've been seeing it for a while, and, like, that's why I'm saying I'm, I want to, like, go after the underlying thing here, not just the faith aspect of it. The faith aspect of it adds other dimensions. But after the Christchurch shooting, right, after that, like, you know, the, the, the killings there, I had friends who I considered rational putting up things that were saying along the lines of that it's whiteness that causes white supremacy Whiteness is something that subsumes all of society. All white people are responsible for racism. Now, if I was to propose that about Islam and say it was a Muslimness that caused the Sri Lanka shootings on you know Easter Sunday, I would rightfully be vilified. And then you you see that coming from like a you know whatever call them woke progressives. I I don't know. It's too many labels for everything. And then. On the other side, you know, if I do, and I have spoken out against what's happening to the Uyghur Muslims because it's, for me, it's not about Muslims or non-Muslims. It's, it's I think you're in the same, you know, it's, it's human rights. It's basic Absolutely. individual freedoms. Like, human uh, dignity. Yeah, you know, yeah. The, the values of the enlightenment that, that and and a lot of people throw these terms around and I don't think people know what they actually mean you know a lot of people throw around freedom of speech but it, they they just think of it okay i have the right to say whatever i want they don't under, fully understand these concepts and i think that's i mean that's a whole other issue but that's what i mean like you it. i don't understand, I I don't know how to argue against someone who says that whiteness in and of itself is responsible for what happened in Christchurch all white people are responsible for racism and if you or I, are you against that point? We have been consumed by the whiteness and that is making us act against our better instincts. How do you, I mean, that is as crazy as anything in any faith and yeah, so that's I, I don't there.
1: normally I, I, don't, I don't normally engage with uh, anything like that. Maybe I don't see it on my timeline or, um, I mean, in general, there's a lot of stuff going on in the meta discussion about religion where you get into this person is on this political spectrum or this person said this or that person platformed this person. I generally try to stay away from that stuff and and I would even call myself ignorant of a lot of those things because I, I don't really pay attention to those kind of discussions. My focus has tried to be really on the theology. Once in a while I'll see what's going on. I might pop my head out and, and have a little bit of commentary on some of those things. But I know that I could just be completely vilified if I missed one detail in the narrative of what happened in the back and forth. So I'm, I'm really loath to get into that stuff. There might be some great points going back and forth that I completely miss. Um, and, that, and that's why I just, I, I generally try to not have too many opinions on that. But to, to comment on the specific example you gave, you know, just to, to look at it in abstract, I think people like that are difficult to reach I think the approach to reach them is to give the example that you even gave about, you know, if you blamed the Sri Lankan attack on Muslimness, that would be wrong. And then just suggest politely that they reevaluate that and acknowledge that their wokeness is probably almost certainly coming from a good place. They're just overshooting and creating other problems in doing so, and then just let them sit with that and let that percolate. I think that discussion can't go any further until they have some private reflection. And I think eventually people like that will hopefully come around.
0: I tried doing that actually with one of them. Um, what I tried doing was, do you remember uh, you know the famous Sam Harris uh, on Bill Maher when when he course, was called yeah. gross and racist? But he was talking about the cons- concentric circles, right? Yeah. You know, you have the jihadists in the middle, and then you have you know the people like the Muslim Brotherhood outside and going out. And i tried doing that i said okay well you know let's just take a a look at um you know okay this white supremacist he is analogous to you know an isis member that's going to go kill a bunch of people right you can those two are the same and i tried but once you get to the outer circle or once you get to a point where you say okay these people are just living their lives they're not you know waking up in the morning to create a white ethnostate or waking up in the morning wanting to kill the infidel, right? Like, they're just waking up in the morning, I'm going to go to work, my kids are going to go to school, I'm going to come home, we're going to have dinner, maybe go see a movie. Like, yo, they're doing that. Yeah. But it gets to that point, and then, and I, like, okay, I I don't want to belabor this uh, because it's going to derail everything, but uh, some parts of academia, that's being taught. And like, like again, some parts of academia that's being taught, but the people I'm speaking with are my peer group, so they're in their forties. You know, close. I'm pushing fifty, and they're not. Um, they're not in academia, but they're 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 picking up the stuff that's coming out of academia, or like I said, some parts of academia where they where this is being taught, and it's like that's what scares me. It's like this is getting into my peer group like on their Facebook page right, putting this up after that happens I'm like okay like there is another it, 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 it almost seems to me like there's some sort of people are searching for some kind of meaning so they're going to this or they're going to the other extreme you know not that you should find meaning in white ethno-nationalism or anything like that or any kind of ethno-nationalism but it just seems like they're 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 craving something. And right. I don't know. And,
1: and this might be that um, for a lot of human history, we invented gods and the religions that went with them because it it filled a need. And I think as religion is very quickly dissipating from society, we haven't kept up with devising things that are good replacements for the people who who crave that. And I think a a large part of the population will crave that. Um, And that's why all these religions and, and gods were created in the first place by humans. So I think that's a legitimate need that we'll have to figure out as a society. How do we, you know, everybody should choose their own meaning and their own purpose. But I think it is helpful for people to have almost like training wheels or a starter set, like a tricycle from which then they learn to ride faster and further and go in their own direction. And so I think that's part of that vacuum is creating the opportunities for some of this craziness as well. And that's unfortunate.
0: Yeah, okay, that's that's a bone of contention I have with a couple of people. And I say, I mean, you know, like, okay, you are dispelling the metaphysical bo- claims of religion. and I have no problem with that. I People shouldn't live under delusions, right? It's, and to call it a delusion, you know, we can get into that if, if it's too harsh a term or whatever, but... But what are you going to, like you said, what are you going to provide them afterwards? You know, it wasn't the, it wasn't the the science part of religion, for lack of a better term. It wasn't God saying, you know, here, I created all this that kept people in it. It was the other part, the 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 knowledge of good and evil, right? Mm-hmm. That's what religion controlled in your lives. I mean, the whole science bit was taken care of. I did this, worship me because of this, and then here are all the rules. Here is how you can act good to get my approval, or at least, you know, in the Abrahamic faith. So just dispelling that, you know, in the case of Islam, that, you know, something you mentioned in your video as well, like the sperm is informed between the ribs and the backbone. I mean, fine, you can disprove that, but can you, what are you replacing it with? Right? You're not offering them anything else. You're just shattering their worldview and then just walking away. And I I, I argue with people who are, you know, oh, well, I just want to break people out, out of their way of thinking. But it's like, okay, you're not offering them anything else. You're just giving them, a, you know, you're, you're shattering their worldview. You're saying, well, think like this now and just leave it. And it's not a good way to go about it.
1: Yeah, most people don't have the tools necessarily, and I think people coming out of religion are the most vulnerable because for so long they've delegated that kind of thinking to other organizations. So when they come out of it, they're starting at less than zero compared to somebody who just grew up non-religious and was thinking about these things and developing systems for themselves from a very young age, um, you know, perhaps with the the guidance of their their parents. But this is where I think things like Alan Zylberman's uh, the School of Life. Um, he's got conferences and excellent videos on different topics and philosophy and life. They provide some good starting points for a lot of people. I mean, well beyond starting points, really. There is um, things like the Ethical Societies. I remember Sam Harris when he launched his uh, famous book, The End of Faith. He gave an hour-long speech, which is a famous YouTube video, and he was at the I think it was it was the Ethical Society. I think it was the New York chapter that was actually hosting that talk. And so there are str- there are communities that are springing up, and I talk about this sort of near the end of my video, where I think there's some work that we can do. But I would recommend to people, if you're feeling like you don't know what's next, if you look at the Quran, there might be 50% of it where you say, okay, some of this I can salvage, and the other 50%, you know, I'm just picking a number arbitrarily is just something that doesn't sit well with you and all the talk about disbelievers and burning in hell and punishment and ad nauseum. Well, you compare that with maybe reading Khalil Gibran's The Prophet. That's probably a much, much better manual for life. And I I talk about his section on children in in one of my latter segments of the video. There's so much beautiful wisdom there. Maybe he's got 5% of it wrong or maybe there's 10% that you would disagree with, but I think he's probably got a much better batting average than books like the Quran that you could rally behind. And it's better having 90% that you agree with and 10% that you don't, that you're free to let go of, than having nothing and feeling like you're rudderless or purposeless or have no meaning. Just long enough to give you some tools for thinking, a frame of reference, and uh, then maybe you don't need it. But there's there's so much literature out there from so many great thinkers. And I think people need to give themselves that or you know read books on Stoicism, Marcus Aurelius, Meditations, uh, Seneca. I think if people supplanted religion with some of these thoughts, th- we'd have a lot less problems. And these aren't the end-all, be-all. We can probably do better than that. But for right now, I think there are some of these things that can help. Give people some perspective.
0: Yeah. And I mean, unfortunately, the one the one thing with religion and um or any kind of these dogmas, okay, take you know, a, a very ludic ludicrous example, uh Anthony Robbins. Okay. You go to an Anthony Robbins seminar I've never been. Uh, just I Yeah. Okay. I'm actually a fan.
1: Okay. And I think a lot uh, of people misunderstand.
0: I'm. I'm not shitting on Anthony Robbins in any way. Yeah. I'm just giving you this as an example. I, yeah. I, I'm saying this is silly in the sense of comparing it to a faith. Okay. But right. I'm just. I'm just going to draw an. You go to Anthony Robbins. From and I've you know I have friends who go to it, like oh I'm so pumped and this and that and they're ready to go and they're, you know they're, they're going to take on the world and then 6 months later they might need to go order a video to watch it again to get that feeling again. Right. Whereas re- with religion, um, you know, you go to church every Sunday or mosque on Fridays, you know, synagogue on Saturdays. You you you, know, you you go do all these things and it's a repetition of that message over and over and over again.
1: As human beings, we need that repetition. It, yeah, so I
0: mean giving and, I'm, and again, it's, it's going to sound like I'm saying you've got to start a whole new faith or something, which is it's not what I want to do, but giving someone, okay, here, you know what, look at these books, look at that, but like the xm a thing, um, yep. you know, monthly meetups or, you know, some sort of regular meetups where you can go talk to people. You, you know, you do have a community. You can go share and talk things out because that, okay, more than the, the person at the pulpit or the imam giving the khutbah or whatever, you know, having some guy with a beard yelling at you for an hour or so is not fun, but the community inside, you know, like I said, I I never went on a regular basis, but I would go to Eid and all that, and then all the people after the prayers, after all the sermons and everything, you know, the the sense of community and the sense of belonging, it's not for nothing, right? So it's... It's a human
1: need, and that's why religion co-opted it
0: yeah it's uh so like i mean like i said i it's not that i had this discussion with a mutual friend of ours uh arvin and it was more along the lines of as you're you know as dan dennett says as you're breaking the spell why not part of that be helping the people the helping the people that you're you know you're trying to say so, okay look this is, this is a different way of looking at things maybe this is a better way at the same time instead of just showing them that better way showing them the toolkit or giving them the toolkit that will help them you know evaluate their evaluate the two systems and see which one's right. better instead of just saying okay you know of course the earth's not flat it's round here you know like instead of just feeding them you know from a fire hose type of thing just say okay, here's the system. Look at this system. Your system says this. My system says this is how we should look at information. Take a look at the two systems and evaluate both of them through that way and just give them the toolkit to do that and maybe having them break the spell for themselves will then lead them on a better way to find out you know, what's going to give them meaning and purpose.
1: Right. I, I, think, um, I think it was Aristotle... Who might have talked about? Um, I know Plato was uh, Plato, sorry, was talking about the you know the ideal forms, and I think it was Aristotle talking about seeking virtue, and modeling where you see virtue in others, and and he's not talking in a religious context; he's talking in a moral context. And a lot of people would wonder, well, what is moral, what is not, and there was there's an excellent crash course video that talks about this on philosophy and how we instinctively gravitate toward people that we think are exhibiting that virtue in, in a better way and we want to more uh, we want to model them so I I think in addition to offering the one-two punch of debunking religion we need to make sure that our own lives as best as we can reflect success happiness um a good way of living, and that we present people with tools and other ways of thinking about things so that they can define for themselves what it means to leave religion and find meaning and purpose in their place after that. And it's not necessarily what we're doing, but I think by being examples of the fact that you can be happy, that you can be functioning as part of society— and, and all of this without religion, I think, is a powerful motivator for people to realize that all hope is not lost if they let go of religion.
0: Okay, just a, a quick thing. and I apologize for this in advance. Are you doing like an ex-Muslim uh, Jordan Peterson thing, like clean your room?
1: Uh, no, <laughs> but I, I think a lot of that stuff is, is kind of obvious. But something Alain de Porton said in his TED Talk, uh, he called it Atheism 2.0, which I think the title sucks. is was really misleading. But his talk itself, the content was really good. And one of the things that he talked about in there was how, in addition to community rituals, some basic guidance for successful living, one of the things that we need as human beings that we gravitate toward is having these sort of weekly or monthly or some periodic exhortation to to live our best selves. And I think… Because we don't get that from religion, people go other places for that. Um, I think that's useful. But of course, we've got to opt in. It, today, it might just be, you know, listening to a TED Talk that inspires us. We poo-poo the, you know, going to the mosque and having some guy with a funny accent drone on at the Friday or something that doesn't make a lot of sense and we've heard over and over again. But a weekly khutbah that was as diverse and as, well-researched as a TED Talk, well, that would be amazing. you know. And this is where I think some of those structures that religion stumbled upon over centuries of refining itself and figuring out what appealed to people, some of those things are universal. And we need to remove the religious context and be able to take some of the things that worked, our need for community, for example, and transplant that into a safer context for the people who want to have that in their lives.
0: Yeah. Okay. See, like I, for the last little bit anyways, I've, and it's not that there's any disagreement with anything you said there, but I've, I've been trying to focus on, um, not what I'm against. And I, I break this rule all the time because I get frustrated. But what you're for. Yeah. But what I'm for. Yeah. And, I'm pushing, you. Know, like I said, the values of the Enlightenment. But at sometimes, at some points too, I'm also trying to push out because you hear it a lot Western values, and I mean, I, I don't really have a disagreement with the term, but you know, if you talk about secularism or you talk about Western values, and you bring that to uh, a South Asian community, like you try to bring it into Pakistan um, or you know, even in the Middle East they have some bad connotations because of, you know, secularism could mean the bath Party. Secularism, you know, could mean Assad. Secularism could mean...
1: Some American-installed dictator. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. So, but um, it's like I... And I don't do it much, but I've tried... It's These are... Look at the chain of what you will call Western values, right? I mean, started with the Greeks, then... It was discussed in Baghdad, and then from Baghdad, you know, you had people coming in from China and India and, you know, obviously Persia. You had people coming in from all over discussing those ideas. You had Baghdad being sacked by the Mongols. Some of that thought through the Middle East came into Europe. Some of it came in through China and India. Some of these things started coming in, and then that thought led to some of it led to what became the Enlightenment, some of it led what to what became um, the Inquisition and, you know, uh, Aquinas' um, uh, thoughts on how to burn witches, like rules on how to burn witches, right? So, like, one camp of it went to that, the other camp went to the Enlightenment. And I was, you know, I'm trying to say, okay, go back, like, these are not Western values. These are not, you know... They're universal. They're they're values that have been around a lot for a long time. They're they're things that we have thought about. And okay, you can talk about, you know, oh, they had slaves in Greece. They didn't really have real free speech or real individual rights. Yeah, but their thought led to that. Like, I'm I'm,
1: I'm trying to- I think one way way to bypass all this stuff uh, is to potentially skip all the labels and attributing what is and what isn't Western values or Enlightenment values, and just come up with a list of the values and put them out there and say, this list is what I'm talking about. Maybe give it a new name. It's Obed's list. And then it's much easier to say, to to have conversations about that list of values. This is one thing I really liked about the Muslim reform movement. Um, Asr-Namani, Zuthi Jasser, a few others were part of that. Like I, I don't think people are converting to that movement Or necessarily signing up. But the thing I really liked about what they did is they put together a manifesto or a declaration of their values. And it was very clear, rejecting homophobia and you know freedom of speech and things like that. All these things that we could get at, you know, we could get behind. And a lot of us coming from a Muslim background would be like, How the hell are you going to reconcile that with Islamic texts? They skipped doing that and maybe that's you know an exercise for the reader to to kind of do the backwork to to connect the two but they just leapfrogged all of that discussion and analysis and lineage and just said you know here's the values we stand for and i think sometimes we've got to I, I recommend that we do that just making a clean break with the past let's not let's forget islam let's forget all these other religions start with a clean canvas let's just layer in the values that we want to talk about give it a name and that can be a positive identity or just a reference point but that's where I think the conversations of the future are gonna be most meaningful and valuable
0: See, okay that's that's something I've kind of I, I was talking about um, a little while back and I again tongue-in-cheek I said how like Sam Harris at one point had said you know this is the uh, this is the narrative narrative like the narrative of how to talk about any given narrative and he was using that disparagingly and i said yeah. I, th- I think it's time we had a conversation conversation and you kind of had that with yourself or had it with your side or your team for lack of right. a better word where yeah. you do just that you come back and you say okay we advocate for free speech but what do you mean by free speech like how free do you want it yo i'm good for in principle as it's laid out in the first amendment i know that's a law but like I think that lives up to the as free as speech as you can have where it's an, up to the point where it's an imminent an immediate threat of danger or violence. Right. All speech up to that point is allowed. Like There right. is no such class as hate speech. But go back and figure out what those first principles are. Right. Bring, and and then say like you'll make out a declaration or whatever. You know what? Where Group X and here is what we believe in. And this is the lens that we will use to look at any any particular issue right. or problem. And do it in such a way that, you know, steel man, steel man yourself
1: in such a way that it's unambiguous to anyone else. Exactly. And this is what we need to do because oral conversations, they can't get so, they can only get so far before we sort of lose our place in the in the mental stack of all the concepts that we're layering on. That's why a bunch of people need to get together, come up with one vision of what some of these things are. Another group will come up and have their own sort of laid out, and maybe these things will be small books, but at least then we can have conversations that are more productive because we can say, oh, I've read your book, I've got this issue with this point, this point, and maybe that's an essay. But there's stuff in writing that we can express with much more nuance and detail and get further in the conversation than strictly oral conversations back and forth and then so I think that's kind of you know putting this stuff to writing and then critiquing it with each other and having discussions based on on giving it some solid form I think is the next step for a lot of us
0: okay actually speaking of that um because you just spoke with uh, Iona Italia right and uh there's something that i've seen her uh tweet out about a lot and it looks very interesting it's it's exactly on this point um called letter dot wiki
1: right letter wiki where you have these conversations yeah, with-
0: yeah and that's exactly what it is and I, I like that's to me that seems very very interesting because it is that you're having and from what i've seen it's all civil i'm sure you know someone wants to go in there and be an ass they can go in there and be an ass i guess but it's you know how much
1: no medium protects us from that
0: yeah Exactly, but we shouldn't...
1: I think that's a fringe part, but what ends up happening is, of course, and you know this, social media ends up uh, amplifying those kind of voices, and then they actually start filtering into some of the cultural concerns. And so I think we need, oftentimes, maybe in the past, we might respond with ridicule to that. I think perhaps the more effective means of combating some of those trends is to respond with a little bit of compassion, but hold our ground where it is pretty ridiculous. Um, And yeah, I think people just don't have the tools anymore to contextualize what's normal versus what's their particular situation, what is is understandably triggering versus what people need to be able to develop a little bit of thicker skin or, uh, no pun intended, in order to uh, function in society because it's not even good for them if they're that sensitive to these things.
0: Yeah. um, Anyways, again, like, sorry, I keep going off on these little tangents, but uh, I want to get back to your video because there's actually one part in there which I I kind of disagree with quite a bit. Uh, Sure. It was when you were talking about, uh, you know, the benefits of Islam, and I'm not saying there aren't any, I'm just one particular one of them, you were talking about consolation at a time of grieving, like at a a funeral or a death in the family or something like that. Now, I don't, I've written something about my four experiences with deaths in the family. Um, Mm. Two funerals and then two where I, 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 you know, they were too distant, like they were too far away and I couldn't go to the funerals. Um, And any kind of consolation that I saw anything that was given was always this is this was the will of Allah people were there people were like you know people would come over bring food it was there was nothing like I've seen it you know in Judaism and Christianity you've gone to funerals for friends or friends families and there is some solace given to the family In Islam, it was, there was no solace whatsoever given. It was.
1: Can you give me an example of the solace that wasn't given? Like what was? Okay.
0: Okay. At my dad's funeral, my mom and my aunt were crying, um, like you know, they do a viewing or whatever. They, They were, they were, they were crying by the body, and my uncle admonished them because there's a hadith that if you cry too loudly and if you moan and wail at a funeral it's a sin okay so grief was denied um this past november went with my mom took her to like my brother and my dad are buried in the same grave in the same cemetery um my mom upon like you know we went to my dad's grave and obviously my mom got sad it's you know natural we go to my brother's grave and she really started crying and in the middle of her grief she stopped to ask forgiveness for Allah for weeping so loudly in a cemetery.
1: I mean, that's obscene. Right, so I can, you know, so let me jump in here. So I understand your objections, and my part of the video there, and perhaps I didn't relay it as clearly, was not that there was a metaphysical consolation, but that there was what was beautiful, and I'm not even saying that this is unique to Islam, and I prefaced that section by saying a lot of these things predate Islam and can be found in other places. In my own experience, they're packaged up with Islam because that was the community I grew up in. And specifically, you could even say, I'm taking an Amadi Islamic perspective on this. And in that, we don't have anybody interrupting women and saying, don't weep too loudly, or citing Hadith. Most these for ahmadis don't even exist. You know, if they manage to survive because Mirza Ghulam Ahmed referenced them in some book or some Khalifa, of the Ahmadi Muslim community references them, you know, they're super cherry picked and woke, then they'll survive. Most of the other stuff doesn't really make it through. So the the Muslim experience won't really have some of these negatives. But aside from that, the, the, the real point that I was making there with respect to consolation was, you have a family who just lost a loved one, and you can be startled. You can be like a deer in the headlights. But then you have this local community who knows you from the mosque, your extended family and, and whatnot. And they come over and people will be, you know, if there's a grieving widow, they'll be like, don't worry, Abba. You know, we'll help you take care of things. As soon as somebody passes, let's say they're not even in the hospital, they'll help with calling the um, the funeral home, getting the body transferred or making arrangements or there's some paperwork or the family is so startled they can't even think about laundry and cooking and other volunteers come over who are not even blood relatives and they're cooking, they're providing consolation. You have a lot of people coming over to offer their condolences. Now those people are staying for a few hours and they need to be fed. But then you have other volunteers who are coming over and they're bringing food so that the grieving family can just be supported, loved and consoled by other people around them, and not even worry about any sort of logistics of anything. That's the kind of support that I was speaking to, not metaphysical and not some of these, you know, weird had these that, that cripple people from grieving properly or crying properly. So I, I understand that that's probably an experience for a lot of other Muslims. For my specific community experience with Islam through the through the Amadees, it was, we didn't have any sort of those negatives that, that you brought up. So I think there we can understand sort of the the different experiences shaping our view on that particular topic.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, okay. And granted, there were people coming over. Um, but again, I found that they would come over and they would, you know, say a couple of words to my mom you know, and to whatever family was there. And then they would immediately go pick up uh, a chapter of the Quran and start reading. And it was, you know, there was no talk of even, oh, he's in a better place or they're in a better place, right? It was just talk of, it was all his will and now it's in all his hands, what's going to happen? Meaning that, you know, maybe I'm just being too critical. I don't know, like, yes, it's great. Well,
1: yeah, I'm not denying any of that. I I think different Muslims are going to have different experiences with that sort of thing Yeah, Uh, because I, I, I haven't, I haven't really come across that sort of thing. I think obviously there would be some talk about um, God and the hereafter if people felt like that would console the grieving person. And if you're coming from a religious framework where you have that available to you, why wouldn't you appeal to it?
0: Okay, I'm going to take this. uh, And again, like you know, that that is. But I'm just saying that that's the only type of. Consolation that was given, like there, there's no. It's, it's it, to me, it seemed it was very. Um, it was all caught up in ceremony, like there, there was you know, there was a protocol to it. Yeah, you, you said this, then you got this reply. You said this, you got this reply, but, uh, just okay. You know, if if the, if the person is being sinful. They're going to have a horrible rest in their grave, and snakes are going to eat them, and blah blah blah, until the judge. But did that
1: come up when families are okay, consoling others? Well, that didn't come
0: up, but the religion came up quite a lot, and that's in the religion now. I'll give you an example, like because my brother, my brother and I were, you know, broke every edict possible. Like you know, we were mm-hmm. very very haram. Okay. my mom knows this now if that's thrown in her face all the time it's like oh it's going to be left up to Allah what's going to happen to him you know in her heart of hearts she might be thinking her son's going to rot in hell forever right I don't see how that's a consolation like right thro- so uh,
1: I, I think people who are insensitive in that way um, yeah it's not really uh, it's not good but I don't think Islam necessarily prescribes that I think certain Islamic community certain pockets may okay. behave that way sorry i
0: just want to interrupt I, no one actually said that to her no one okay. said that your son but the religion is being brought up over and over again she's reading the quran over and over again right yeah and these things are in there yeah so she's reading that and you know if you're reading a book and you had a loved one just die and there's a passage on death in that book that's going to stick out to you right
1: sure and there, there are perhaps other passages that might be more consoling that don't touch on that and, and uh yeah yeah and, I, I think it's kind of hard to police that that's just inherent in religion
0: yeah, it's no, going to be I, good I, stuff I, and bad stuff i realize that but i mean i just i've I, again i you know you can't you don't know people's families like you know even close friends of mine you know, who were never really religious. I don't know if once everyone left, internally they're they're turning to some sort of faith to, to lead them to that. But everything, even the consolation around it, I found was just based on reading the scripture. It wasn't so much of, you go there, you say a few words, and you sit there and you read a chapter of the Quran and you leave. And that was kind of what it was. It was, to me, it was solely religious-based. And again, obviously, like, I, I don't want to be... To, to beat this point home too much but you have a you know your background as opposed supposed to mine where my you know obviously that changes things but it's like i said in my opinion i found that and that was one point of contention like yeah. that was like i think the only real point of contention it was and it's 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 really minor and i'm being nitpicky and i, yeah. I realize that yeah.
1: um, no it, no I, under, I understand the pain because i think for for a non-believer perspective like we have that would be annoying but i think we also have to remember that if the assumption is those people are believers can we really say that that doesn't provide consolation to them? It, it might actually be what, what does. Yeah. We'd have to actually ask them as opposed to, as non-believers projecting what um, we may feel they feel. And, and that's something that we can do as believers, asking our, sorry, as non-believers, we can ask our believing family members who've gone through this how did this make you feel and what were your thoughts at that point in time and and maybe from their perspective it's exactly what they wanted to hear they wanted to hear the scripture because that console them that all is not lost and that they'll see their loved ones again or whatever yeah. um, it's hard for us to know
0: no no I, I get that like I said just to me it just seemed like it was uh, I mean, it's the last thing I'll say on it if you want to continue I'll, I'll let you have the last word on it but the last thing I'll say on it is there's a, a small little uh, I don't even want to call it a book, a booklet by a German philosopher Jurgen Habermas called um, An Awareness of What is Missing. And he opens it up talking about a friend's funeral. Um, and this friend of his was an atheist. Most people going there were atheists. It was held in a Lutheran church because it was a large only building large enough to hold everyone. And you know, people came up and gave testimonials for this person's life and talked about it. He said everything was there. But the amen was missing. And, like, okay, and again, this is my personal experience, you know, four different, only, you know, an N of four here. Um, But, you know, at my dad's funeral, the imam trying to proselytize to the non-Muslims there. Um, Yeah. uh, People running to the coffin and almost dropping it because it seemed like a, a prize to be held my aunt berating me when my brother died that I didn't fly to Mexico because that's he died in Mexico waiting for the body to come back and that I was you know that I had the audacity to wait a week to have the body brought home and I didn't just fly to Mexico and bury him there. Um, you know my my brother had a son that was born within twelve hours or so he died, um, the son. And then my even though my sister in law like you know, even if she'd been out of the hospital she wouldn't have been allowed to go to her son's funeral, uh, to her son's burial. I mean, it's things like that, that I'm just like, th- this religion, there's an amen missing there. You know what I mean? They're, 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 it, it, this is supposed to be the ceremony that you know, lays the soul to rest so then the soul can then pass on to the afterlife. I mean, that, that, that's what religion is about at its core. It's It's about what happens to you after you die. And I found that it treated my dealings with the treatment of death. I, I I just found it abhorrent. There there was no respect in it. I didn't find any respect in it. It was just rote ceremony, and just you know, you do this, then you do that. You, you know, there there was, there was there was there there was no compassion in it whatsoever that I found, and you know.
1: Right, and, and based on what you describe, I can, I can understand that. Uh, and uh, I, I think the only thing I have to add is really just to reiterate that different people, different Muslims belonging to different sort of expressions of Islam can have quite different experiences there. And uh, some of us will have had better experiences dealing with funerals and death, and others of us from the Muslim world or from sort of Muslim backgrounds will have you know, not so nice experiences and memories of, of how those things were conducted.
0: Yeah. Um, anyways, this is a little bit of a downer of a topic, so yeah. let's maybe move on from that. Um, again, because like I said, I, I really appreciate how calm and you, know, how you express yourself and any of the interactions I've seen you have with people on Twitter and stuff. You know, I think more people should try to emulate that. Um, like, do you have any advice for people on like how to proceed or how to have these conversations, or especially like a uh, yo, know, younger Muslims who are questioning, who are not quite sure, any advice for them on like how to go forward
1: so I, I think um one of the patterns, and this is probably going to be very unpopular of me to say uh, among uh, especially probably younger ex-muslims, is that I think well, and some of it, I don't even think will be controversial. A lot of people who leave religion in general, it's understandable and it's fairly common that we go through an angry phase. You know, we feel duped, you know, we feel upset, like, how did I believe all this? And how did I waste so much of my time focused on this stuff that wasn't true or miss these opportunities? And the later in life that we leave religion, we might have more tempered our anger, but we have even more to feel upset with because we've lost even more time. Um, So one of the things, the pieces of advice I'd give people is recognize that it's normal that you're gonna feel angry, but likely in a few years, you'll probably look back and say, I probably regret being so over the top and public in my anger. And so one of the best ways to, to get that natural venting out of your system that you need to is to connect with an ex-Muslim support community. And I don't just mean online or on Reddit, I mean in person. So people who are in North America, Obed and I, for example, are members of EXMNA, ex-Muslims of North America. There are similar, similar groups all across the world. When you connect with people in person, you go to a local meetup, you can have these cathartic venting sessions and you get it out. Whereas if instead you're getting it out on Twitter, then people who are your family or friends who might see you, let's assume you're not even using an alias, or later you claim an alias that you used to use, people will develop such a negative impression that later on when you've got more tempered things to say and more wisdom to impart, people will often have formed, and you know this is unfortunate and unfair, but they will have inf- formed sort of negative opinions based on feeling so angry. So I'd say, get that venting done in situations where you're in a support group as opposed to necessarily in public. The other thing, uh, the advice that I have, is that remember that religions, as a non-believer, you know, we're necessarily taking the position that religions were invented by human beings. And they were invented to serve a need. Some of those things that they invented are really nasty and we've got to let go. Some things like community or, you know, the wisdom of speaking the truth and things like that, um, we don't need to let go of. We may find it harder to find our bearings or to find our our community, but we shouldn't necessarily throw out everything. And so the advice I give people is sometimes you can feel really lost when you let go of religion and you've got to rebuild your value system brick by brick. And so what I'd recommend is don't try to do it all at once. If there was something in religion that for so many years guided your life or gave you peace of mind, then when you leave it, let's say you've had issues with it theologically, the um, misogyny is just too thick and you had to let it go, drop the parts that obviously don't make sense. But other things that guided your life don't feel like you need to drop everything all at once. Do it piece by piece as you encounter situations that call you to reevaluate something. And that way it's more gradual and you'll feel like you're more in control. And obviously, this depends on what specific things we're talking about. You know, if you're a parent, don't circumcise your boy, you know, um, Give that some thought, you know before you have the kid. Um, so some of those things you need to act on immediately and change, but there are other things that you may not need to and, or that you might later on. And if you do them gradually, especially the ones that are not like life and death or of major consequence, uh, that you need to address right away, you're going to feel more in control of your life. And that transition is going to go smoother. Because I see a lot of people who sort of throw out the baby with the bathwater and think that You know, the opposite of Islam must be the way they need to live their lives, not realizing that religions in general were created by human beings to give us some coping mechanisms. So you've got to be really particular about the kinds of things that you throw out. There's the obvious things theologically that don't make sense or the really nasty commandments and the misogyny and inequality. Um, But uh, take it one step at a time. That's my advice.
0: Yeah, I mean, just a little, one little thing to add on to that. Because I've always said to people, if they've ever asked this, don't think of it as that you're losing faith, but that you're gaining a clearer understanding of the world around you. Beautifully said. I'll I'll go on to something else here for a second. Uh, Something I've been calling overcorrections. And I think there's, uh, you know, the the Uyghur Muslims, that's a perfect example. I mean, that's a completely extreme example. Uh, Okay, we have to fight. Because I, I see people, I've seen people here who said, oh yeah, you know, blah, 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 this is wrong with Islam and that's wrong with Islam. Then when they heard about the Uyghur Muslims, they're like, oh, China's getting it right. I'm like, no, that's that's, that's, that's not getting it right. That's not getting it right in the least. Um, people have, overshoot
1: on both sides of yeah, the political, yeah. ideological spectrum. Uh, yeah. um, then,
0: you know, far-right populism, you know, that that's an overcorrection to another issue. But in Quebec, there there's one that I really find egregious and then I'm I, in my mind both the pro and the con sides of it are using the worst arguments possible to be for and against this and it's this law 21 that they want to pass in Quebec which is um, it was, a, it was a weird evo- uh, evolution first it was uh, the the new premier said I'm gonna ban all um, civil servants and government employees from wearing any overtly religious symbols then he said, "Okay, we're going to start with the Muslims first. Then we're going to go to the other religions. Now it's a blanket on all religious symbols." I am opposed to this law. I think this law goes against fundamental, you know, first principles, and I, I, I just, I think it's wrong on many levels. The people who I agree with when they say they're wrong, they're just saying this is a racist bill. This is all racism. You're attacking the hijab, and the people who are pro this bill are like. The hijab's a horrible thing. We don't need it in public life. These are both the wrong arguments. Just because you don't like the hijab, you're going to deny someone the right to practice their faith. And they're doing it in the name of secularism, and they're doing it in the name of uh, laïcité, which is a French concept. And it goes even further than secularism. Laïcité even goes in to say that the government shall not pass any laws governing faith. And you're specifically doing that.
1: Yeah, I think some of those things are, some of these attempts at laws are problematic, and I, I can't say that I've really kept up with that, um, so I'm usually hesitant to comment on things, because there might be some angle that I'm I, like, I, 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 I,
0: I'm not actually like, I'm just saying, like, yeah. I was just pointing that out as something as an overcorrection. I mean, as an you, overcorrection, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. if you, I, I don't want you to comment on something you're not, not you comfortable? Yeah. But
1: I can generally say, I think people have the right to, to wear a hijab or not wear a hijab and if we start policing that and saying you can't we start creating martyrs out of them and then people end up focusing on that martyrdom as opposed to actually looking at the teachings of islam and evaluating the truth claims so i think with enough you know when when people don't feel threatened uh and in this case for example muslims when they feel like their civil liberties are being respected when they don't feel threatened, that's when they're most open to actually reflecting on their beliefs and having people, you know, gently challenge them on it. And that's where change happens. But when you start putting people on defensive like this, you're basically cutting out the opportunity for change from within to happen.
0: Yeah. And I mean, like I said, I- and I'll be hypocritical here because I don't think if I walk in to get my, you know, socialized health care card or get my driver's license, I don't think I have the right to have, you know, if I was a woman to be wearing a niqab or a burqa or if I walk in, I don't think the person who's serving me has a right to wear a niqab or a burqa because I think there's a fundamental, when it's in that kind of situation, walking down the street, I don't care. But in that kind of situation, there is a right, for each party to know who they're dealing with, you know, right? But
1: there they, are there are such things as accommodations. A friend of mine has explained to me where, if um, you know somebody coming up with a niqab comes up to the counter and that person has to actually be looked in the eye or whatever, you can have you know the the, the 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 clerk there maybe it's a male can just tap a button and some woman from the back office or whatever can come in escort that lady to a separate room. And she'll take off her niqab in front of her and get that verified, and then you can proceed. So there's small things that we can do that are accommodations that I think can stop creating martyrs out of Muslims oh, who oh, won't want oh, to dress okay. the way they are. No, so no. I, I think there are ways to, to move around these things. No, no, I agree. With, I agree with you there
0: again. But you know, you have to make accommodations, and th- that that aspect of okay, going to a room and to, that's I'm fine with that. As long as someone can say, but then if you need a picture for your driver's license or you need a picture for your um, health care card, as you do in Quebec, that picture can't be a picture of you in a niqab. I'm sorry, it can't.
1: Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you on that. I think you need, like, if you get pulled over by the cops mm-hmm. and they need to verify identity, um, they need to be able to ask you to remove your niqab and look yeah. at the picture on the driver's license and put the two together those situations like th- that's going to have to happen yeah or,
0: or or again you know what make an accommodation you, a police officer pulls up a woman now a woman in a niqab driving I know I see them in Montreal and stuff but it's even that it's like okay that's it's a little bizarre but you're driving you're in the niqab an officer pulls you over they can say okay no I won't even show you my picture until a female officer comes by and you can have you know you can sit by the side of the road waiting for a female officer to show up who can then in the privacy of person's car or in the back of the police car or whatever they can look at the driver's license and verify that it's you know but i think that that has to be done like and again if i'm walking into the license bureau and the person serving me is wearing a niqab no i think if you're serving the public you have to show your face at least in, in like an official capacity if it's you own a store you want to run your store or whatever or you're working at you know uh the bay or something uh and the Bay is okay with it. Do you want to serve the public wearing that? But if it's an official capacity of some sort, or if it's in a bank or something like that, where identity is important, I don't think if you're serving the public, you should be able to serve the public with your face covered.
1: So so to play devil's advocate there, I think identity is important if you're the person applying for something. Um, if you're the person that's already vetted by the government behind the counter, serving the public, your identity... Uh, at least in the scenarios I'm imagining matters a lot less than the identity of the person coming up to the counter applying for something
0: yeah but you also have the right to know who you're dealing with I mean yes it's a government person but okay
1: I, I hear you and I and I think I, I don't really have a uh, a ready response to sort of the follow on because then I think it really gets into the weeds but yeah, yeah that's, I, as, I, that's as far as I would yeah and, know, a, and again throw some ideas out there
0: I'm fully admitting that I'm being hypocritical here you know, because I'm saying like you know we have these rights, but I, I I think this one right, you know, like again this is this is where you get into the weeds, and this is where you should, if we're going to be talking about what our first principles are, what our rights are, what our values are, these are the kind of questions that you should discuss t- to figure out. Okay, where you know, yes, this is a value that I want to keep. Um, like just kind of staying with this, and I think this might be the last little bit that I'll put in and i'll let you have the rest of the time um was you know we i talk i've talked about first principles and i've used the term foundational principles and i know other people do it and say okay you know and i've used the term you know free speech is a bedrock of all our liberties and stuff but i i don't think that's a good analogy anymore i I don't like that idea um i i think free speech is a and free expression and you know the rights of the individual those are are first principles that we come from but i don't think it's right to look at it as a foundation or bedrock anymore i think that's too rigid i was saying okay let's let's change our way of thinking about these things and think of it as a garden because you need to tend the earth of that garden you need to take care of it it's so easy for weeds to sprout up you know it's so easy for the if you don't water it if you don't make sure that there's nutrients in it if you don't let things grow that will nourish the soil as well as take nutrient from the soil you're gonna ruin it all as soon as you start thinking of a foundation it's rigid and that, that to me that's the other thought pattern it's the dogmatic thought pattern it's religion it's you know fascism it's marxism it's it's all that like these religious ways like these 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 rigid ways of thought you know is like it's the david duke like the static thinking like those are foundational those are a rigid foundation whereas If you want to have proper first principles, you need to have something that'll let things grow, something that can easily be changed, but is firm enough to keep what's important.
1: Yeah, I can see that.
0: Um, Yeah, anyways, I I don't know if you have any last thoughts, or uh, I don't want to keep you too, too long. Uh,
1: Nothing uh, nothing that comes to mind. I mean, if you've got any more questions for me or things... About the video, or writing, or activism, or support groups that you want to talk about, I'm I'm all yours.
0: Actually, there is something. How would you? Because we're we're both in both these groups. Um, Muslimish versus XMNA. I know there's. I mean, XMNA Obviously, there there's a you know you can't be believing. But how do you think of their two different approaches?
1: So. I think, um, and I join both because I think they serve complementary needs. I think there is a need for a group that's just for ex-Muslims. I mean, you've got a lot of people who have to go back to the Middle East after they finish their undergrad, and they've got security concerns that are, you know, for most people would border on paranoia, but they're quite legitimate. And xm prides itself on having very strict security protocols that for a lot of people are over the top, but people who understand the ex-Muslim space understand that that's actually necessary. I think the beauty of Muslimish is that they provide a space that's open to not just ex-Muslims, but people who are questioning. And I touch on this in my video. And so people who have questions, they don't really fit in at the mosque, they know something's wrong, and they want a community where they can kind of talk and, and vent and say things that might seem blasphemous, and just sort of voice them out loud, Muslimish is a great community for that. Now, I I personally would like to see something like Muslimish that was catered to sort of the, the gentler end of the spectrum uh, in terms of questioning. Like, with Muslimish, you'll still get ex-Muslims there who are very firebrand, and even if you're a questioning Muslim, if you come into it, you can see a lot of blasphemy in their spaces that in a pure atheist group or pure ex-Muslim group might just be, you know, you, you kind of expect that or you're, you're, it's not really gonna shock you. But as a questioning Muslim, th- I think there is value in, pro- in providing a space to dialogue with ex-Muslims that's not so in your face blasphemous, that's a little bit gentler. Um, I go by the adage that just because you can doesn't mean that you should meaning that oftentimes we'll say, you know, you have the right to blaspheme, you have the right to say whatever you want, but that doesn't necessarily mean that doing that actually achieves the goals that you're trying to achieve with that speech. So I think in the case of questioning Muslims, I always go back to the CEMB, the Council of Ex-Muslims of Britain, their videos from about 10 years ago that Hassan Ridwan uh, narrated and put together. They are so gentle. I could sit down with my Muslim parents and actually watch them together. And so if you have somebody who's questioning and you can approach it that gently um, and hold back on your need for, you know, excessive blasphemy and things like that, and maybe save that for a pure atheist group or a pure ex-Muslim group, I think that bridge could be even more successful. I mean, that's just my opinion because maybe I'm, you know, I speak more on the softer side and I... I try to speak to my my former self as a believer and what would have drawn me in versus what would have pushed me away. And so, you know, these are my opinions. But I think even in its current incarnation, where Muslimish takes in questioning Muslims and ex-Muslims, you know, notwithstanding it having a very sort of uh, blasphemous undertone for questioning Muslims who might come in. I still think the fact that there is an ability to create that dialogue is very important. So I think these two groups, I wouldn't even use a versus uh, to, to talk about them. I, I see them serving complementary needs.
0: Okay. Um, anyways, I don't want to, like I said, take too much of your time. And I'm I, getting just one little thing. Like, I, I, I think you kind of described the two groups very well. Um, you know, obviously there are some cross purposes, like ex Muslims are pushing more about you know, ex is pushing more about the apostasy and whereas Muslimish is maybe leading people to the apostasy. Uh but before I let you go, uh I know you mentioned that you're gonna be doing more videos. Do you have anything that's coming up if you want to talk about where people can get a hold of you? Um I'll put all your social media stuff uh in the description. Uh, and if you have anything you want me to uh, you want me to put in the description, send it to me. But yeah, if sure. you have anything yeah, coming I, up.
1: I, I think I've shared some links with you, but uh, really quickly, um, for people who want to see my future videos or even the, the first coming out video I did, I released that two and a half hour video as one video first. And then I've got a playlist on my channel that has, I think, 28 little segments of it broken down. So if you want to jump to a particular spot, you can do that. And that whole thing that's two and a half hours, I called it part one of my coming out. And I've got a part two and a part three planned. I'm actually working on part two right now as we record this. And you can also, I'd recommend for people who like to read the written word, which is a, albeit a small proportion of people (laughs) these days, um, they can go to my blog, reasononfaith.org. And if you go there, you'll see my more formal articles. Typically, they're much longer form like one hour reads there you know i've got a, a treatise there on my beliefs i've got an overview of Ahmadiyya islam their beliefs and practices and it's topically indexed so you can kind of jump to any spot you want to jump to the concept of satan or jinns or the supernatural and things like that you can do that and then if you go to reasononfaith.org microblog you'll see sort of shorter form articles some guest posts and those tend to be things that come out of discussions on social media, often on Twitter, sometimes on Reddit. And for people who want to engage in discussion, I'm one of the moderators on a Reddit forum, which is basically an internet discussion forum called Questioning Islam Ahmadiyyat. Um And you can get to that from Reddit. It's slash r slash Islam underscore Amadea. We couldn't fit the word questioning at the front because that's too long and Reddit wouldn't allow that. But that's a forum. It'll Again, it'll be in the show notes that Oved uh, puts together for this video, for this this podcast. And that's where you'll see a lot of discussions. We have pinned links there on things like strange theological positions of the Amadeya. You'll see other people discussing more of their personal lives and, and how the Jamath often says you can leave, but there's so much emotional baggage and... Uh, constraints with doing that so a lot of that other discussion if you want you can get there and of course i'm on twitter at reason on faith and also on facebook at reason on faith i've got a facebook page i don't really friend people there i just encourage people to follow the page if they'd like me in their feed and to keep up with what i post there and i think that about covers it
0: all right well thank you very much and thank you very much for coming on thank you everyone for listening and i'll be back